Amen. What a wonderful song service we've had this morning. It's been an incredible blessing to me. And excited to turn to the Word of God uh, with you this morning as well. You know, I'll, I'll admit to you all, I was absolutely torn as I began looking over some of the, the subject that we're going to consider today, because we're going to consider a miracle of Jesus that's recorded in all four of the Gospels. And, you know, in the extensive nature that it's recorded in each of the Gospels, this doesn't happen with any other miracle. So we receive a really long, fairly lengthy account of this miracle that we're about to read in all four of the Gospels. And the reason I was torn is I simply could not decide which uh, account of the miracle to read first this morning. I really think the song service... uh, helped clarify that in my mind. So we're going to read from John chapter 6. And in this account, we're going to read uh, the miracle in which Jesus feeds the 5,000. And of course, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, you know, we understand that Scripture records the number of people that He fed as 5,000 men. So it's reasonable to, very, very reasonable to assume that there was at least twice that many people that Jesus actually fed. So there's a distinct chance that Jesus fed at least 5,000 people, if not upwards of 10,000 people uh, in this account. You know, and feeding 10,000 people, I've never tried to do that. Um, But I have been a lot of places that feed that many people. I understand a little bit about how hard it is to do. You know, but Jesus did not have an industrial-grade cafeteria. He didn't have cutting-edge kitchen equipment to feed this many people. He had a very limited amount of food, which he blessed with a pit prayer and broke to feed thousands and thousands of people. So, you know, part of the reason that this, par- this, this miracle uh, is recorded in all of the Gospels is because it's a miraculous feat of God's power. It's really one of the most miraculous miracles that we read about in all of the Gospels, I would claim. And also, it contains some deeper implications that it's really, really important for us to think about this morning. So let's read together from from verse 1 of John chapter 6. We're going to go ahead and read through verse 15, because I want us to read the entirety of this miracle. After these things, which we'll talk about here in a moment, by the way, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles, which he did upon them that were diseased. And Jesus went up into a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. And the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he said unto Philip, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? Listen carefully. And these things he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus, Philip answered him, Two hundred penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may take a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon's brother, saith unto him, There is a lad here, which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes, but what are they? Amongst so many. And Jesus said, Make the men sit down. 
Then there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed it to the disciples. And the disciples said to them that were set down, and likewise of the fishes, as much as they would. When they were filled, he said unto his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost." Therefore they gathered them together and filled twelve baskets with the fragment of the five barley loaves, which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth that prophet that should come into the world. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force, To make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. Again, the typical typical humility uh, that you see in the Lord Jesus Christ. Also, a fixity and an understanding that he came to fulfill God's will. And what was God's will? We're told of God's will in actually John chapter 6. That all that the Father giveth me, that is Jesus, in verse 37 shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Jesus clearly understood that he didn't come to the world to be a king. He came to the world to save his people. So when he understood that because of this miracle, men would come to him and demand that he be made a king, he simply departs into a mountain by himself alone. Now, there are also some really unique circumstances surrounding this parable that are recorded at greater length in the other three Gospels. So there were several things that were happening. Jesus had just sent out his disciples to begin preaching the gospel in a more manifest way than he had previously, really at any point in his ministry. And so he's chosen these 12 men. He's chosen these 12 men from these vastly different occupations, from these different areas of the land, and he sent them out for the first time to begin preaching the gospel. And so as they're doing that, they face persecution, as they often did and repeatedly would. And they come back to Jesus, and they bear with them this rumor that Herod has heard that Jesus is traveling about the land preaching the gospel. And people have assumed that it's John the Baptist that has risen from the dead after he's been executed by Herod. So as Jesus, he's going about the land, he's preaching, he's healing, he's preaching that the kingdom of heaven is at hand a message very similar to what John preached, by the way, people began to assume that, oh, this this isn't a new person. This is John the Baptist that's been raised from the dead. So Herod decides that, oh, I want to see Jesus Christ. Because I I want to know whether or not this is John the Baptist that's been raised from the dead. And so when Jesus hears of these things, he simply departs into another land where Herod doesn't have jurisdiction. We, we read where he goes in verse 1 that he went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. He simply goes to a place where Herod doesn't have any jurisdiction. You know, and this is really a pattern that he establishes for children of God in Matthew chapter 10. Because he says, when you're persecuted in one city, I want you to flee to another. This is also what he says in Matthew chapter 10. I'm going to condense a lot here. Please forgive me. But he also says, when the gospel is not well received by one group of people, I want you to simply go and preach to someone else. So here's the pattern. When you're persecuted in one area, I want you to flee somewhere else. When you share the gospel with someone and they don't receive it well, simply go and share it with someone else. 
And this is the pattern that Jesus is establishing. Herod wants to see the Lord Jesus Christ. And I assure you, he's not looking for a friendly encounter. He's just beheaded John the Baptist. And now he's being told that supposedly John the Baptist has risen from the dead. And now he's traveling about the land preaching once again. And so Herod wants to see Jesus again, not because he wants to have a friendly encounter. So Jesus, he departs over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and he's doing so in relative solitude. You know, he has his disciples with him, but they seem to be in boats. They're traveling across the Sea of Galilee, but a great multitude follows Jesus. A great multitude follows Jesus. Because they saw his miracles, which he did upon them that were diseased. So they're following after Jesus, seeking healing. Here's another interesting element of this passage. Jesus, he's gone up to the mountain and he's sitting there with his disciples. And the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. A pass, the Passover, feast of the Jews, was nigh. So we have this important religious event That's occurring right at the same time that Jesus decides to flee over the Sea of Galilee and sit in the top of this mountain. Now, first of all, if Jesus had really attributed the importance that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these hypocritical religious leaders of the day, had attributed to these festivals, many of which they had established themselves, by the way, Jesus wouldn't have gone over the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus, he's not concerned about this festival that uh, the Jews had established, that the Pharisees and the Sadducees had really orchestrated in all of its pomp and unnecessary circumstance. He goes over the Sea of Galilee. And a great multitude also follows with him. So note this, Jesus and his disciples, they're leaving the Feast of the Jews behind. The multitude is also leaving the, the, the Feast of the Jews behind because it was nigh. It was a time of preparation. There's also a chance, considering how Jesus, far Jesus traveled, that they would not have been able to arrive back in time to begin this feast as they should have. So they're leaving behind the traditions of the Jews and they're seeking after this man, Jesus Christ, who's fleeing from the presence of Herod. And when Jesus, he lifts up his eyes in verse 5, and he sees this great company of people coming. He sees this great company of people coming. And he asks the question that he knew the disciples were asking in their minds. He asked the question that he knew the disciples were asking, which is, whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? So he's out on top of a mountain. He's just taken boats across the Sea of Galilee. And he sees this great company of people coming. And he asks, how are we going to feed them? Why? Because Jesus didn't know how he was going to feed these people? No, Jesus knew exactly how he intended to feed these people. You know, in verse 6, we read that in this he said, he asked the question to prove him, Philip. For he himself knew what he would do. So he asked the question that he knew all the disciples were asking. And the question that the disciples were asking, in essence, was, how are we going to feed all of these people in the wilderness? How are we going to feed all of these people where there is no food? Jesus is establishing a pattern of worship 
and a pattern of discipleship here in this passage. He wanted to illustrate both to his disciples and the multitude that follow him. It's when you go out into the wilderness seeking me, I will feed you. When you go out into the wilderness seeking me, I will feed you. So the, great, the disciples go with Jesus. The multitude follows Jesus. And he fully intends to feed them. So what happens? Well, we read that, that Andrew, one of the disciples, he finds some food, right? He finds some food. He finds five barley loaves and two small fishes. And he tells Jesus about this. And of course, all the disciples say, well, Jesus Christ, there's, there's no way that you will be able to feed all of these people with just five barley loaves and two small fishes. You know, we have upwards, well upwards of 5,000 people here. There's no conceivable way that you would do that. But Jesus, he understands that he has the ability to create food, to make food in a place where there is none. And these people are going to experience a miracle Because they were willing to leave behind the feast of the Jews, the traditions of men, the pomp and circumstance of the law, and pursue this carpenter out into the wilderness in hopes that he might feed them in some way. And I assure you, the way that we're worshiping this morning, morning even, embodies that. We have tried to set aside many of the traditions of men that might inform the way that we pursue Christ. We have set those aside and we have pressed into a place where it often seems as if the world could not provide us food. And what happens? The Lord, he takes the small things of this earth and he feeds the child of God. And what he doesn't just feed them, he doesn't just give them barely enough. He doesn't just feed them till they're teetering on the edge of starvation. No, He stuffs them full of the food that He provides. He stuffs them so full that there's enough to feed the disciples and there's also some left over. The Lord feeds in excess and He feeds in abundance and He feeds good food that's not made by the hands of men but is made at His own hands. It's spiritual food from above. It's a pattern that He established For the Israelites in the wilderness as they wandered in pursuit of the promised land. I assure you, all of us gathered here this morning are in search of a better land. We're in search of a better place that our soul is starved for. And the Lord, as He leads us through the wilderness, He provides us with food from above that feeds our souls. It's food from above that feeds our souls. Let's read from Deuteronomy, the 8th chapter. Deuteronomy, the 8th chapter. In verse 2, And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldst keep His commandments or no. And He humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna which thou knewest not. Neither did thy fathers know that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. The Israelites, they're led through the wilderness. They're suffering hunger. They're suffering famine. They cried out to God and said, oh, what if we but had the flesh pots of Egypt? 
The place where they were in slavery, by the way, for 400 years. And yet the Lord, he provides them with manna from above. It's a food not of this earth. Why? That he might prove them. Just as he proved Philip, by the way. It's the exact, it's translated to the exact same word in English in the New Testament as it is in the Old Testament. That they might understand that the people of God are not to live by man's bread. The people of God live by God's bread. And God's bread is most often, I would say, and most often Scripture also says, not found where man's bread is found. You don't sit down at the table of man and eat the bread of God. And the Lord doesn't ask us to sit down at the table of God and eat the bread of man either. Rather, he prepares us a table in the wilderness. But yet the Lord does ask something of us to, to sit down at that table. Again, to continue to use, use our analogy. He asks something of us to receive bread at the hand of God. And the people that we read about in, in the book of Luke, in the book of John, and the other two Gospels as well, they were willing to fulfill those requirements to sit down at the table of God. Now again, they're willing to step outside of the domain and rule of those that are persecuting them. They're willing to, to flee to another place. And again, they're also willing to leave behind the, the Passover, the feast of the Jews that was nigh. It was so close. They should have stayed. They should have stayed, right? This is what they had known. This is what they had understood their whole lives. The way that they had worshipped for the entirety of their lives. But they saw something greater. They saw something greater in the personhood of Jesus Christ. They saw, yes, that He was healing the sick. And also that He was coming proclaiming something greater. He was coming proclaiming spiritual healing. Spiritual salvation. Spiritual regeneration. The message that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. So they were willing to leave behind the traditions of men. They were willing to leave behind the traditions of their father. And pursue Jesus into the wilderness. Let's read from Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, again in verse 35. This is a passage that is so incredibly relevant to our positions today, that we remain watchful and prepared for the coming of our Lord. Okay, and it still uses the analogy of food. And I love that because that's something that we understand, right? We understand how incredible food is and also how effective food is at building relationships among each other. Uh, it's... it's a way that Lord has provided for us to also build relationships and enjoy fellowship with each other. So we're told in verse 35 of Luke 12 that we're to let our loins be girded about and your lights, our lights, burning. And ye yourselves like an event that wait for their Lord when he will return from the wedding, that when he cometh and knocketh, they may open unto him immediately. Listen carefully to verse 37. Blessed are those servants whom the Lord when he cometh shall find watching. Verily I say unto you that he shall gird himself and make them to sit down to meet and will come forth and serve them. He says, servants, if, you, if your Lord has departed into a feast, okay, and I assure you today, our Lord has departed into a feast. He is celebrating with his Father right now at his right hand over the accomplished work of salvation. Now, that wedding feast has not culminated yet because the Lord has not been reunited with his bride. But the Lord, He's a part of the eternity and He sits on the right hand of the Father because He's completed the work of salvation. And so we in this present time wait for the Lord Jesus Christ to return 
just like these servants waited for their Lord to return from a wedding feast. He says, servants, when you come back, when you are waiting for your Lord and your Lord comes back, I want you to be ready to receive Him. Here's really what I want to hold in on. When the Lord returns to find His servants watching, when the Lord returns to find His servants awaiting His coming, His servants do not begin to serve Him food. Note that in verse 37. When the Lord returns and He finds His servants watching, we're told that He, the returning Lord, shall gird Himself and make them to sit down to meet and will come forth and serve them. So there's a reversal of roles here. The servants are supposed to be serving the Lord food, right? That's what a servant does, especially in this New Testament context. When the Lord returned from His wedding feast, the servants were to be prepared to welcome Him in, to wash His feet, to give Him new raiment, to serve Him food, to appease the weariness of His journey. But rather, the Lord Jesus Christ, when He returns and He finds His servants watching, does He sit down and let His servants serve Him? No, rather what happens is the Lord serves them a meal. Because when we pursue the Lord out into the wilderness, a place destitute of natural food, the Lord does not expect us to bring much to Him. We ought to. We ought to try our best. In a figurative sense, we ought to bring our five barley loaves and our two small fishes. But when we come before the Lord to worship, It's like that young man coming before the Savior of the universe and presenting his five barley loaves and his two small fishes and saying, Lord, can you take this and feed 5,000 people? Our efforts, they are so weak. The angels don't consider themselves worthy enough to come before the Lord and worship Him. Rather, they cover their eyes with their wings and they go about ceaselessly day and night for all eternity singing holy, holy, holy. And yet that is not good enough for the graciousness of our Lord. How are we to come before Him and worship? I assure you, we will never be worthy of doing that. The Lord Jesus Christ decides that we are worthy and He has made us worthy through His blood. Because when we come before Him to worship, we bring our five little barley loaves and we bring our two small fishes and we say, Lord, feed thousands of people with them. And without the graciousness and miraculous grace of God, that food's never going to be good enough. It's never going to be good enough. But what does the Lord tell us to do? He says, child of God, I want you to take your five barley loaves and your two small fishes and I want you to travel out into a place where you despair of being fed. And that is where I will feed you. I want you to come to a place where you are humbled so greatly that you realize that you could never feed yourself. I want you to come to a place where you realize that we do not live by bread alone, but by the words that proceed out of the mouth of God. And he says, when you reach that point, when you reach that point, that's where I'm going to take your five little barley loaves and your two small fishes, and I'm going to feed thousands. I'm not going to just barely feed them anything. I'm going to stuff them full, and there's going to be food left over. Now I'll say this as we draw our thoughts to a close. 
we need to worship and pursue worship, pursue a doctrine which affirms that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God, and that the loaves and fishes that we bring before the Lord are always insufficient. And I assure you today, there is no doctrine that affirms that better than the doctrine, the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We come before the Lord with nothing. We come before the Lord as broken sinners, saved by the grace of God. I say it is that doctrine that rest prepares the child of God to come before the Lord of the wilderness and be fed to overflowing.